Let's go back through the top episodes and my favorite moments of 2022 on the People Scientist podcast. to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist. We'll be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 139, where I aim to arm us with some scientific information so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How are you feeling today? I hope that I can add something positive to your day within this episode, and thank you for bringing me into your day to allow me to do so. So what are we going to talk about? Well, seeing as today is December 18th, this is the last episode of 2022, and I love reflecting back on everything that we have learned, how we've all grown and changed this last year. So in this episode, let's take a walk through 2022 with some of my favorite things that we learned and the top five most listened to episodes. I also want to take a moment to say thank you to you. Yes, you listening right now for this awesome year that we've had together. I've really enjoyed this journey on the podcast. I feel that this year I pushed the boundaries with diving more into the psychology and neuroscience of topics. I shared my own research on the podcast and I showed more of myself through my love of dance with all of you. So thank you for being a part of this journey with me. Now, as we reflect back on 2022, can you think back on your favorite episode or the favorite thing that you learned from the podcast? I've covered topics such as how watching horror movies may make us more resilient, the neuroscience of embarrassment, greed, rejection, social anxiety, how to make friendships that last, the neuroscience of intuitive eating, and so much more. And I would absolutely love to hear what your favorite topics were. But before we jump into the highlights of 2022, as we always do, let's start off with a foregone fact where I share a scientific finding from long ago. As it is close to the holiday season, I tried to think of a fun and timely foregone fact. And a popular movie and story around this time of year is How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So let's talk about some old case studies of kleptomania, or in other words, a compulsion to steal. Now, stealing can be due to need, like in individuals that need resources. They may go against morality and steal from others in order to survive. But there's also a compulsion to steal independent of need. Many individuals love the thrill of stealing, even if they don't need the resources. This has been coined compulsive stealing or kleptomania. Now, back in 1916, Bernard Glueck published a case study about a young man that continued to steal despite the negative consequences. The young man describes an uncontrollable urge to steal items from people, even if he did not need the item. The young man, when interviewed, said, quote, 
I begin to feel giddy and restless and feel as if I have to do something. This feeling becomes gradually more marked until I feel compelled to enter a house and steal. While stealing, I become quite excited and voluntarily begin to pant, perspire, and breathe rapidly as if I had run a race. After it's all over, I feel exhausted and relieved. End quote. Back then, in many case studies and reports, scientists speculated that a compulsion to steal seemed to satisfy a craving for adventure and an adrenaline rush. So sometimes treatment for compulsive stealing would be to offer other thrilling activities that didn't break the law, including adrenaline sports such as rock climbing, cliff jumping, swimming in ice water, horse racing, surfing, etc. So maybe the Grinch would not have stole Christmas if he just did some mountain climbing up to his house on the top of the mountain. <laughs> so that is it for today's foregone fact. Now let's get into the top episodes of the People Scientist podcast from the year 2022. Let's first talk about my favorite episodes and my favorite things that I learned this year. I really enjoyed the very first episode of 2022, which was about how watching horror movies may make us more resilient, and that was episode 117. A study had shown a correlation between people liking certain types of horror or thriller movies and their resilience during the pandemic. It was speculated in this episode that individuals who enjoy horror movies may be more likely to have higher scores for resilience for two reasons. One, they may have higher levels of morbid curiosity, meaning that when they witness something bad or horrible, instead of having a negative emotional reaction to that, they look at it with curiosity and logic. So as a result, during something like a pandemic, instead of having negative emotional reaction to it, they approached it with curiosity and logic as well. And the second reason that there might be a correlation between people who enjoy horror movies and being resilient is because horror movies may act as an opportunity for scenario training and emotion regulation. Movies can place us in an artificial, scary scenario to allow us to think how we may act in the same scenario and offers us an opportunity to regulate our fears in a safe environment. So I thought that this was a really cool episode. I also really enjoyed episode 127. This episode was all about the pursuit of happiness and how that lies in juxtaposition. In episode 127, I talk about how scientists have realized that happiness is not just about feeling the good, positive emotions, but feeling the right emotions for you. Sometimes it feels good to be sad. Do you ever like watching a drama movie or listening to sad music? Sometimes it can be very cathartic and therapeutic. There have been theories around the pursuit of happiness since the time of Aristotle and even earlier. For example, it has been theorized that for us to have a happy life, we need to have three things. Hedonia, eudaimonia, and wisdom. In other words, we need to experience pleasure, have security, and, had, and to have a life of meaning and purpose, as well as to experience many things in our life, good and bad, in order to have contrast to the good in order to have our perspectives changed and to gain wisdom. In this episode, I talk about a study back from 2017 where Tamir and colleagues shared in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. The scientists queried what emotional experiences we should pursue in order to find happiness. So the scientists recruited a group of 2,324 individuals across eight different countries. 
The participants were to fill out questionnaires in regard to their desired emotions they wanted to feel, what they actually felt on a regular basis, and questionnaires on their indices of mental well-being, such as their symptoms of depression. Now, as we would expect, a common theme in the participants' responses included people wanting more pleasant feelings like relax, calm, relief, love, trust, affection, interest, excitement, and passion. People in general desired unpleasant feelings less, such as hatred, hostility, and anger. But what was super interesting about the study is that within this population, people desired the opposite to what we might think. About 10% of people wanted to feel quote-unquote negative emotions more. Like they wanted to feel anger. They wanted to feel hostility more than they currently did. And some people wanted to feel pleasant emotions like love and excitement less than they currently did. The scientists really noted was that if there was a gap between what people wanted to feel and what they actually felt, their happiness was lower. Importantly, these emotions that people wanted to feel were not always the typical positive emotions. And sometimes people did want to feel the quote-unquote negative emotions of anger, jealousy. Sometimes people wanted to feel less love and empathy. So what feels right to everyone will differ. Some people enjoy watching sad or scary movies because they want to feel that emotion in a safe space, while others do not want to feel those emotions. So what feels right is very personal and unique to everyone. What is common among most that was found in this study is that people do want to feel some contrast. We want to feel differences in our emotions. We want juxtaposition. We don't want all good or all bad. In episode 127, I also share probably my favorite paper that I read this year. This was by Oishi and Westgate in the journal Psychological Reviews in 2021. They wrote an incredible review on what it means to pursue happiness and the three different theories. In this review, Oishi argues that Aristotle and others believed that the pursuit of happiness was about one, hedonism or enjoying life's pleasures and having security, material wealth and financial security contribute to this aspect of happy life. The second component to the pursuit of happiness has been thought to be eudaimonism, which is to have a life of meaning and to have purpose. And many people fulfill this category by raising a family, having a career with impact, or volunteering in the community to positively influence those around us, being a part of social movements and protests, and being a part of political change. That we are having a positive impact just beyond ourselves. But in this article, they also propose a third aspect to the pursuit of happiness, and that is to have a psychologically rich life, meaning a life that includes a variety of experiences, good and bad. So let's talk a bit about this new concept of happiness, a psychologically rich life. A psychologically rich life involves taking time to reflect on our life's experiences, whether they be good or bad, and trying to learn from them. Now, The opposite would be to mindlessly consume experiences one after the other. Now, psychological richness involves tapping into the hardship and embracing the juxtaposition, the contrast. It involves living a life of curiosity and experiencing perspective changes. The scientists studied college students to determine what aspects to life added to their psychological richness. Now, the scientists noted that students who studied abroad reported much greater increases in psychological richness versus students who remained on campus. Now, what specifically in the studying abroad led to the psychological richness? It often was the students participating in artistic activities, excursions around an unfamiliar town, meeting new people with different life experiences. 
What was impactful about the study abroad was experiences that were novel, challenging, and perspective-changing. So whether the experiences are big experiences like studying abroad, or small, more common experiences like attending a concert of a music genre you normally wouldn't, we seem to all have an impact and promote our psychological richness. Psychological richness involves not only valuing the positive events in our life, but also taking the time to value the hardships. Now, two people can experience the same tragedy, but respond to that event very differently. For these negative experiences to contribute to our psychological richness, it requires our ability to remember them, to actively reflect upon them, and to learn from and integrate these experiences into our life. So I really enjoyed this episode, episode 127. Those are some of my favorites of 2022. But what were your favorites? Now, if I go back and see which episodes were listened to the most, this gives me some insight into which episodes were perhaps the most favorite. So let's briefly go through the top five most listened to episodes of 2022. So let's start at the bottom with number five. What was the fifth most listened to episode? It was episode 122, Magnesium for Coping with Stress. Now, scientists believe that a stress, whether that be psychological stress, like a demanding job, demanding schedule, lack of sleep, or physical stress, like reducing calories, intense exercise, that these stresses may increase our need for magnesium. And that is because magnesium helps to counteract our stress response. I like to think of magnesium as the mediator in a conflict between two people. The mediator is aiming to bring about a compromise and balance. But if we are deficient in magnesium because we don't get enough in our diet, or if we have high demands because of a chronic stressor, then that mediator can't do its job. Thus, we may battle with symptoms like irritability, fatigue, mild, mild anxiety and nervousness, muscle weakness, and stomach upset. In fact, in most studies, a magnesium deficiency is used to generate and induce symptoms of anxiety in anxiety research. Now, chances are a lot of us battle with the symptoms of a magnesium deficiency, and this may manifest as stress. Because there are estimates that over 75% of us are not getting enough magnesium in our diet. So if we believe that we are magnesium deficient, what are some good food sources? Well, for example, we can get our daily amount of magnesium by combining these four foods. One ounce of pumpkin seeds, one cup of cooked spinach, one ounce of dark chocolate, and one banana every day. Now how about supplements? A few studies showed the soluble preparations are generally better absorbed, and magnesium aspartate, citrate, lactate, and chloride have a superior bioavailability compared to magnesium oxide and sulfate. Now, as a side effect of magnesium supplementation, it can, there can be diarrhea and stomach upset as well. Now, it is suggested to obtain magnesium from the diet, from foods, because foods rich in magnesium also have other healthful nutrients, especially potassium, which we should consider to be in balance with magnesium. I've also seen some electrolyte powders to be mixed in water that contain both potassium and magnesium, and these might be beneficial for some. But as always, please do seek the advice of your physician or dietitian, as for example, individuals with kidney insufficiency or kidney failure need to be very careful with limiting their potassium intake, so always seek the advice of your physician. Now, I really enjoyed this episode, and I heard that many of you tell me that you added some magnesium to your daily routine, and that you've noted some benefits to your energy, your mood, and your bowel movements, and I'm really glad that this episode was beneficial for some of you. 
So that was the fifth most listened to episode of 2022, Magnesium and its Impact in Coping with Stress. That was episode 122. Now, what do you think was the fourth most listened to episode this year? It was episode 136, What Does Taste Have to Do With It? In this episode, I focus on one study in particular. This study was published in the journal Nature this September by Lee and colleagues coming out of the Charles Zucker Group. In this study, they aim to identify the neurobiology behind why we want to eat fatty and sweet foods. Why do we enjoy consuming junk food? What motivates us to do so? Now, even though this study was done in mice, I think it gives us some food for thought, especially in the context of many of us losing our sense of taste temporarily with COVID in the last couple of years. A very common side effect of COVID was loss of taste, but one interesting observation in relation to that was that many of us still had a craving to eat delicious food. We still wanted and enjoyed and craved eating junk food. Why is that? Well, in this paper, the scientists first differentiated the difference between wanting and liking junk food. They defined liking as our immediate response that is dictated by our mouth and nose and the taste receptors on our tongue. It's our ability to detect flavor. So us eating a chocolate bar, tasting the chocolate, and enjoying it right away, that is deemed as liking. This is often what is lost when we have a cold or a stuffed nose, for example. Now the other event, the wanting, the craving response that says, yes, this is good, keep eating this, seems to be more dictated by our gut-brain axis. And that occurs more slowly and over time. This is more about nutrient sensing. And this wanting system works via the enteroendocrine cells in our small intestine that detect the nutrients, and that sends a signal via our vagus nerve to my favorite brain region, the nucleus of the tractus solitarius, or the NTS, that sits at the back of our brain to send a signal of satisfaction and satiety. Now this study is interesting because it gives us insight as to why artificial sweeteners may only be partially satisfying. That is because artificial sweeteners act on the liking system but not the wanting system. So it's only half of the puzzle. We can taste the sweetness in our mouth, and that is why we might enjoy artificial sweeteners. However, they do not activate our gut-brain axis because they do not have the ability to act on the receptors in our small intestine and do not appear to activate the cholecystokinin cells of the vagus nerve to send the signal to the NTS brain region. So perhaps this is why artificial sweeteners are not as helpful to curb cravings for some individuals is only half the piece of the puzzle. Now in this study they had noted that specific cells in the vagus nerve expressing cholecystokinin receptors seem to be particularly important for the craving of sugar and fat. Now what's interesting how we can make this information actionable is that we know that these same cells are particularly responsive to amino acids and fatty acids. So when we eat foods rich in protein and fat cholecystokinin is released and sends this signal of satisfaction and fullness to our hindbrain. Perhaps this is why diets higher in protein and fat are effective at reducing food cravings. There are other mechanisms as to why a higher protein, higher fat diet may help with food cravings and weight loss. That is because this type of diet may also decrease insulin and may also increase basal metabolic rate. I speculate, what if we can activate these cholecystokinin cells in the vagus nerve via other healthy compounds to help us feel satisfied to lower our cravings, like a lower carbohydrate diet, rich in healthy protein and fat, In this episode, I also talk about sour and bitter taste that is in the absence of sweet and salty. That is because bitter and sour on their own may induce satiety and satisfaction. That is because through evolution, bitter taste is associated with harmful, potentially poisonous things in nature. 
So naturally, our response when we consume something really, really bitter is increased saliva production, gastrointestinal motility, upset stomach, diarrhea. This is because our body's response to tasting something really bitter is to say, hey, don't consume this. This might be harmful. Because through evolution, as I said, poisonous things tended to be bitter. However, in today's food supply, bitter compounds and bitter tasting things are safe for us to consume, but may be now used to our benefit to curb appetite. So this could look like drinking a strong black coffee, adding lemon zest to tea because lemon peel contains the bitter compound limonene, or strong black tea. So that was some core takeaways from episode 136, the fourth most listened to episode this year, What Does Taste Have to Do With It?, where we show that craving sweet and fatty foods is actually independent of our liking or tasting system, but more so has to do with the gut-brain axis and nutrient sensing. Okay, what was our third most listened to episode? Can you guess? It was episode 124, The Neuroscience of Self-Confidence. In this episode, I share some neuroscience and try to turn that information into actionable suggestions for all of us. Now, confidence is our ability to believe that we can achieve something. Self-confidence is the probability that we believe that we are capable to do something with success. This is highly related to self-esteem, which is our positive thoughts of our worth, our abilities, and positively perceiving ourself. Now, why we study self-confidence and self-esteem is because it can greatly influence our mental health, our happiness, our success, and the success of others around us. Neuroimaging studies identified certain brain regions as being important in self-esteem and positive self-evaluation, such as the medial prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, and the precuneus. Now, this is interesting because these brain regions now give us a target to enhance our self-confidence if we by chance battle with low self-esteem, such as the technique of affect labeling, making a decision, planning, and reaching for achievable goals. But as with everything, too much of a good thing could be a bad thing, such as overconfidence or arrogance. Now, observational studies indicate that overconfidence can be harmful. Imagine a surgeon or a pilot being overconfident in their ability to perform the task. How detrimental that can be. So how can we prevent or reduce overconfidence? Well, scientists have noted that individuals that scored very confident but were not competent tended to score high for arrogance and dogmatism meaning that they were steadfast in their principles and beliefs, unwilling to take in new information or opinions of others, and scored low for openness. Thus, if we want to avoid being overconfident, then being open-minded, considering other perspectives, and being open to suggestions can be helpful to reduce overconfidence. So to keep in mind everything in balance. In this episode, I share some neuroimaging studies. For example, Fruin and the journal Scan in 2013 conducted a really neat study. Using functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, they measured the recruitment of different brain regions in 20 women to understand how self-esteem might be processed in the brain of women. They wanted to understand how the brain may signal differently in women with low self-esteem versus higher self-esteem. So first off, they identified certain brain regions involved in self-confidence, or more specifically, positive self-referential processing. These brain regions included the dorsal and ventral medial prefrontal cortex, the cingulate cortex, and the left temporal parietal cortex. So brain regions that sit at the front of our brain that are involved in information processing and decision-making. 
The scientists also observed in this study that the ventral medial prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex responded during negative self-reflection, particularly in women who regarded themselves more negatively. But dorsal medial prefrontal cortex of the brain responded particularly in women who experienced greater positive affect during positive self-reflection. So let's take these findings, let's take these brain regions, these targets, and turn them into actionable goals. So the amygdala was implicated in negative self-reflection and low self-esteem. Well, based on many of the episodes that I've talked about on this show, the amygdala is implicated in emotions, such as fear. And the medial prefrontal cortex seems to be implicated in self-evaluation and information processing. So if we want to increase our self-esteem or how we feel about ourselves, how can we approach it? One technique is affect labeling, and that can change the recruitment of our amygdala and bring on board our prefrontal cortex. In episode 123, I also talk about the neuroscience technique of affect labeling. For example, Costa Freda and the journal Brain Research Reviews in 2008 pooled together 385 neuroimaging studies to support the utility of affect labeling. I also describe affect labeling and provide references on my social media platforms if you want to look at that too. But briefly, affect labeling is a technique where we take a deep breath to stop our autonomic reactive emotional responses. Next, we specifically identify the emotion we are feeling. Like, I feel jealous. I feel unconfident. Third, we identify specifically why we feel that way. This technique works to reduce the recruitment of the amygdala, thus reducing our negative emotions. This technique helps to bring on board that logical decision-making part of our brain. So remember how I said Fruin in 2013 identified that women with low self-esteem had a more responsive right amygdala versus women with higher self-esteem? Well, this technique of affect labeling might provide a neurobiological answer to this increased recruitment of the amygdala because affect labeling is supposed to reduce recruitment of the amygdala. As hundreds of neuroimaging studies that this affect labeling technique can be really effective by bringing on the medial prefrontal cortex. So what else recruits or targets the medial prefrontal cortex? Well, this brain region is very important for many things, such as taking in information, processing that information, and subsequently planning and making decisions. So let's now take it one step further and be specific to the content of confidence. Let's target the medial prefrontal cortex by planning and making a decision. So step one was to affect label to get those negative emotions under control. Step two, let's make a decision. Decision making brings on board that medial prefrontal cortex. So how about we make a decision to feel better about ourselves? Let's make a decision toward self-improvement. Let's decide to stop feeling sorry for ourselves. Third, let's plan. Again, planning brings on board that prefrontal cortex. Confidence is rooted in the aspect of us attempting to do something and being successful at it. So let's plan something that helps us to gain a new skill, something we can accomplish. What will make us feel better about ourselves? We can plan a workout routine that we will enjoy that will make us happy. Like taking a dance class, we can start some art projects and feel satisfied with what we've created. Perhaps we can learn a new language and be happy with our progress. Perhaps going for a run and measuring how fast we can run for a duration or certain distance. Now, it is important to measure our progress as seeing our ability to achieve our goals is a very important aspect to having self-confidence. So this technique of bringing on board our logical part of our brain to one, identify what we are feeling, why we feel this way, and making a decision to be better and to feel better 
then planning out activities to help solidify that confidence is my actionable-based suggestions based on the neuroscience that we know about self-esteem and confidence. So that was some core takeaways on the neuroscience of self-confidence, an episode that is a great example of how understanding our neurobiology can give us targets and an understanding and ideas for self-improvement. Okay, what do you think was the second most listened to episode of 2022? It was episode 125, The Neuroscience of Intuitive Eating. Now, intuitive eating is an adaptive form of eating that has recently gained recognition. It is defined as a strong connection with and eating in response to our internal physiological hunger and satiety cues. Now, this style of eating is supposed to represent adaptive behavior because it represents trust in and a strong connection with a response to our internal physiological needs pertaining to our hunger and our feelings of satisfaction and eating in response to our feelings rather than relying on the clock, rather than relying on diet plans or environmental cues or emotional reasons. Now, those who report to eat more intuitively have been described to be less likely to overindulge in food in the absence of hunger and less likely to allow emotional or situational cues guide their food intake. So does this, does this style of eating, intuitive eating, promote health? Well, in this episode, I described some clinical trials. For example, in one study, overall, the intuitive eating group saw improvements in many aspects of their mental well-being. The women over time while trying to eat intuitively felt less hunger, were more in tune with their feelings, had more introspection, had higher self-esteem, less symptoms of depression, less preoccupation with achieving thinness, less symptoms of bulimia, and less symptoms of disordered eating. Overall, the women achieved more stability and mental health with an intuitive eating plan, whereas the control diet that simply followed a lower-calorie diet saw less improvement or no improvement at all in these measures. So it is interesting. The typical approach to weight loss with focus on food intake and exercise did result in weight loss but did not result in much of an improvement in mental health or the relationship that the women had with food. So it begs the question then if a lower calorie diet could be combined with intuitive eating approaches in order to bring about both physiological health and mental health. In this episode, I talk about body image and developing a positive relationship with food and eating. Now, one of my listeners and friends, Daniel, mentioned how intuitive eating may not be appropriate for everyone. For example, for athletes with very high levels of activity, as sometimes they don't necessarily feel like eating, but they require higher intakes of food in order to maintain their muscle mass and their body weight. So it is important to keep in mind that there is no perfect diet or way of eating that is appropriate for everyone, and we need to find out what works for us and our physiology and our mental health. So that was episode 125. Now, for the number one most listened to episode of 2022, what do you think it was? For fun, how about I list three episodes and take a guess as to which one you think was number one? Do you think it was episode 118, Can Indoor Plants Improve Our Air Quality and Mood? Do you think it was episode 119, How We Can Use Psychology to Create Lasting Friendships as Adults? Or was it episode 131, What are we so afraid of? The neuroscience of rejection. The number one most listened to episode in 2022 was 
what are we so afraid of? The neuroscience of rejection. So how about we dive into that one just a little bit. Episode 131, my interest in this topic of psychology of rejection actually started about six years ago when I saw this TED Talk by Jia Jiang. Now maybe some of you have seen his talk. His talk is entitled, What I Learned from 100 Days of Rejection. And in his TED Talk, he spoke of how his fear of rejection caused him to be stagnant, frozen. He was afraid to speak up at work, afraid to ask for what he wanted, and his career suffered. His happiness lacked. So he decided for 100 days he was going to purposefully expose himself to rejection in order to get over his fear of it. So he would do funny things like go up to strangers and ask them for $100. He went to a fast food place and asked for a free burger refill. He said the first time and many times he asked for these things, he was so nervous, so embarrassed, like it felt like a child. And most times people would chuckle and would say no, and sometimes they would ask why. The first few times, Gia had walked away quickly embarrassed, but over time when people would ask why, he would stay and engage the person and try to explain. He was learning how to deal with rejection. So for example, in one of his scenarios, he went up to a house and he had a flower in his hand. He rang the doorbell and he said, hey, can I plant this flower in your backyard? The guy laughed and said no. Normally, Gia would have run from this embarrassment, but this time he decided to stay and asked why. The homeowner said, well, because I have a dog and he digs up all of my plants. But Connie next door loves plants. You should ask her. So Gia went to Connie's place, rang the doorbell, and she was so happy and allowed him to plant the flower in her backyard. Now, if Gia had done his usual response to rejection, which was to feel embarrassed and leaving right away, he would have assumed, oh, they said no because they didn't like me, because they thought I was weird or for some other reason. But because he stayed and asked the homeowner why, Gia had learned that it was none of those things. It had nothing to do with him, but it was something logical, like his dog was going to dig up the plant. Now, there were some other bigger ones that he had done, like he always wanted to teach, for example. So he went up to professors and asked several if he could teach in their course. The first two professors said no, but the third professor said yes. So through his 100 days of rejection, he'd realized he could fulfill his dreams simply by asking. In this episode, I also talk about rejection in the context of romantic relationships. Now, deciding whether or not to pursue someone romantically often requires us to risk one of the two issues. One, pursuing someone when the interest is not reciprocated, which can result in rejection, or as failing to pursue someone when interest is reciprocated, resulting in missed romantic opportunities. Now, in this study, the scientist examined how strongly people wish to avoid these two competing negative outcomes. What was intriguing was that participants were far more likely to be impacted by a missed opportunity, a what-if, as opposed to the rejection itself. Now, when the participants were asked to recall a regrettable dating experience, participants were more than three times as likely to recall a missed opportunity, rather than a rejection. When presented with romantic pursuit dilemmas, participants perceived missed opportunities to be more regrettable than the rejection itself. So the take-home message from this study? We are going to regret the actions we did not take, more so than the actions we do take. A missed opportunity will likely hurt more than rejection. So we can take that step, go for it, and if we get rejected, at least now we know. At least we tried. 
And we can learn from that experience, improve our approach, improve ourselves, and try again. It is thought that rejection can lead to social pain and can induce negative feelings by recruiting portions of our dorsal anterior cingulate cortex in the anterior insula of our brain. But in this episode, I try to get across the message that rejection is a part of life, that we should expect it and learn to move on from it. Why? Because we are likely to regret missed opportunities more so than feeling rejection itself. So let's not let the fear of rejection stop us from going after the things we want in life. Just like Jia Jiang did, simply asking really might surprise us and result in some great opportunities. So that is a wrap, my People Scientist Army, a recap of 2022 on the People Scientist podcast. What a great way to end the year. On the top most listened to episode, What Are We So Afraid Of? The Neuroscience of Rejection. Thank you for coming on this journey with me this past year. I've made so many friends by doing this show, and I'm so incredibly grateful for you. I cannot wait for 2023 to see how this podcast shapes up. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season. I will be taking the next scheduled podcast week off for the holidays, so the next episode will air January 8th. Hope that you all have a wonderful rest of your 2022 Sending lots of love and happiness to you all. See you in 2023. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.